I want to share a little bit this morning about the idea of family. The idea of family. I don't know when I say that word, what images that conjures up for you. Maybe when I say the word family, your heart is filled with warmth, Thanksgiving time and family and gifts at Christmas and big meals together and lots of laughter and lots of security. Maybe that's the picture. Maybe the picture's not like that. Maybe it's one of uh, dysfunction. But either way, when you grow up, there is something unique about family in that you can get away with treating each other a certain way, whether it be siblings, brothers and sisters or whatever, because you're family, right? You know what I'm talking about? Certain things that you would say, certain things that you would do that you can kind of get away with. You would never say that to somebody else. You would never let that be seen out in public, but because you're family, you can do it and there's, you know, there, there, there's an element of forgiveness there because your family, it's just kind of expected, right? Well, while I was growing up, I was uh, not the kindest brother in the world. Our family had its fair share of dysfunction and uh, teasing and that sort of thing. One time in particular, I remember I was probably uh, maybe 10 or 11 years old and I had an older sister who was probably 14, maybe a freshman in high school. I had three sisters, all right? So I grew up as the lone uh, male in the household with all these sisters, which is why I'm so messed up in so many ways. It's a whole nother message for another time. But, uh, but anyway, so I had to, you know, I had to defend myself. I had to make sure that my sisters knew who was boss, even my older sister. So one time uh, I can remember in particular, uh, we had a situation where, uh, you know, there are rules in our household uh, where she could not be talking on the phone past 10 o'clock. You know, back in the olden days, some of you remember, we actually had phones that had this huge long thing, right? Like a cord. So you had to kind of be in one spot until, you know, the richer families had the cord less phone. We weren't quite there yet. We still had the tethered phone, but uh, I remember going downstairs for a drink of water and it was like 10.30, 10.45. And, uh, and I see my sister out on the back porch just talking away. And so instead of doing the honorable thing, like perhaps, you know, going out there and confronting her in a biblical manner, you know, expressing my concern of her disrespect for my parents' rules and suggestions she do the right thing. Instead of that, instead of even going upstairs and telling my parents, which is like the second option of maybe honorability, I decided to go for the third option, which was to take things into my own hands and to teach her, how do you say, a lesson about disobedience. So I went into our closet. I got out one of my dad's big, like, London fog, big black trench coats, all right, like it goes all the way down to the ground kind of trench coat. And I also got a ski mask and put it on. And then my favorite toy of choice was a plastic black AK-47 machine gun assault rifle. So I sneak out the front, go down the front porch, go around the house. And I can remember, it's almost like I was in 21 Jump Street, right? You remember that old show back in the 80s? Some of you were with me. And so I'm like, I got my back against the, the vinyl, the corner here, and she's right here on the porch. And I can see the flood of light from the back porch light coming out. And there's like a wall right here of light. And so I'm getting ready and I'm doing my little internal count off. All right, here we go. Three, two, one. And I just step into the light and just point my gun right at her and don't say a word. And so she's just up there gabbing away. Oh, in school today and homeroom and blah, 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 blah. And I'm just standing there and I'm just aiming. And all of a sudden she turns over and 
sees what it is and screams bloody murder, throws the phone up, it's dangling over, runs up, screaming as loud as she can all the way up to my parents' room. And so I, of course, you know, mission successful, sneak into the back of the house, try and put stuff away and pretend like I just woke up. What's going on down there? My parents didn't buy it. And for some reason, they were upset at me. I mean, I'm just the one, she's the one that did that. Right? But we know what we're talking about, family dysfunction, but what? We can look back at that now, we can get away with it because we're family. And there's some element of those people that are your flesh and blood that share the same DNA, the same blood running through your veins, that there's a special connectivity. And that can play itself in a couple different ways. On the one hand, those people can be the ones that can be closest to you, can be the most encouraging, can provide the most support. And at the same time, those very same people have the ability to hurt you the most. Why? Because they've lived with you. They've seen you at your best. They've seen you at your worst. And so because you're living in that close proximity, there's a unique, special relationship because your family. Now, Jesus had a very unique perspective on family. We want to dive in uh, to the scriptures here. Turn to Mark chapter one. We're going to be here just for a moment in the first couple of chapters of Mark, but I want to, I want to highlight for you a very unique perspective that he had on family. And as you're turning there to Mark chapter one, I want to uh, just give you a little background of what the scene is that we're entering Hereupon, Mark starts the story a little bit later in his narrative gospel than some of the other ones do. So to bring you up to speed, here is the situation. In Luke chapter 4, we get the account of right after Jesus had began his public ministry. You remember he was 30 years old, which is the age that rabbis came into public teaching and authority. Jesus was 30. He had been baptized by John the Baptist. Uh, the Holy Spirit came down upon him. He was ready for his ministry. He went out for 40 days in the wilderness and was tested. He came back and the very, one of the very first things he did, according to Luke chapter four, is he went back to his hometown. He went back to his family. And in Luke chapter four, he enters the synagogue again, where he had grown up, extended relatives all around. His mother and his father and brothers were all there. He enters into the, uh, into the, te the temple at Nazareth. And it says this in Luke chapter four. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. It says this. And Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. Remember 30 years old now, can have the authority now, stood up to read. And he went and took the scroll of the prophet Isaiah that was given to him. He unrolled the scroll. He found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives and recovering the sight of the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I mean, that's a pretty monumental passage, because right after it, Jesus literally closes the scroll, puts it back without anybody saying a word, and just sits down. In our modern context, it would be like reading that, dropping the mic, 
whoa, 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 and sitting down. That's what the account says. It says, nobody said a word and every eye was on him. What did he just say? And then Jesus said, behold, what we have read is being fulfilled right now in your presence. I'm the one that this is talking about. I'm the one that has come to set the captives free and to break the chains of those who are in prison and to heal those that are sick. The year of the Lord's favor, all the prophecies that you've heard about, the Messiah, I am here, it's happening. And people got upset. People got angry. You remember they said to one another, who is, isn't this Jesus? We know this guy. Uh, his mother and his brothers are here with us. This is his relatives are here. Who is this? This can't be right. And it says they became so angry with him. They were so offended at the blasphemy. They took him and they brought him out to the crest of Nazareth, this giant cliff. I have been there and they were getting ready to throw him over the cliff. That's how angry they were at this family member, this person that they knew that was now claiming to be the Messiah. So it's in this context after that rejection had taken place that we enter in to Mark chapter one. This is important. Remember what Jesus has just gone through. Start reading in verse 29. By the way, side note, I love the book of Mark. It's so like action packed, right? If you're like kind of ADD and you just kind of get lost in the weeds, the book of Mark is great for you because everything is, and immediately he went from there to that. And then immediately he went over here. It's just... It's moving. It's like the Cliff Notes version, right, of the Gospels. But anyway, here in Mark chapter 1, verse 29, and it says, and immediately, told you, he left the synagogue and he entered the house of Simon and Andrew, that is Peter, with James and John. Now, Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately, there it is again, they told him about her. And he came out, and I won't go through, go through the whole story. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. But the point I want to make is he entered into Peter's house. So here he was from the time of zero to 30, lived with his mom and dad. That was his house. That was his connectivity. These were his relatives. Now all of a sudden he's in Capernaum and he meets Peter, calls a few of the disciples to himself, goes to Peter's house. What's really interesting is you need to know that word house is the Greek word oikos. Okay, think of the yogurt commercials. Don't let that get you too distracted. That's the word. And it doesn't just mean like many of us are familiar with like, oh, I just bought a house or I moved into a house or, you know, we're going to meet at the house. The Greek word means so much bigger than that. It means household. It means extended family. And the idea here is that Peter and the other disciples were living like many people in that time where there was one little courtyard and then a bunch of rooms that were all kind of on the outside of that, but they all lived together. That's what the oikos was. And so what I want to note about that is when you skip over to chapter two, verse one, it says, and when he, that is Jesus, returned to Pernium, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Jesus was in his house. Jesus was in his home. Right now, when I was doing this research this week and I had been studying these things for a couple of years now, I had always been taught, you know, the son of man has no place to lay his head. Jesus was homeless. You know, how many times have you heard that? But the terminology that's used here is basically saying 
oh no, he was living in a house. He was living in the house, most scholars agree, moving in with Peter, with some of the other disciples together. And now Jesus is saying, this is my house. He was now entering in to their family. And skip down a little bit more to verse 15. It says, and as he, that is Jesus, reclined at the table in his house, there it is again, Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And you read through the narrative here and it seems that Jesus' house, living there with Peter and with the other disciples, became an absolute mecca of people coming in to get healed. So much so that people couldn't even get in to the house. They were dying, literally dying to get in and hear Jesus and be healed by Jesus. But the point is Jesus entered now in to this family and saying, this is your home, I'm coming in, now it's my home as well. We're sharing our lives. Now here's where it gets really cool. Skip one chapter over to uh, Mark chapter three. All this is going on, they're healing lots of people. The crowds are continuing to expand. In Mark chapter three, starting in verse 31, you see that this very mother and brothers that saw him in Nazareth just a matter of a few short days perhaps earlier with that whole scene now have come down to Capernaum to find Jesus to talk to him. Look at this, verse 31, Mark chapter three. And his mother, Mary, and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. Why were they standing outside? They couldn't even get in because of the crowds of people and disciples and people wanting to hear this great teacher. 32, when a crowd was sitting around him, when people sit at the feet of a teacher, that is a posture of discipleship. These are the disciples around Jesus. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And Jesus is now confirming and verbalizing in the presence of all what had already been true when he entered in and was living with them and said, this is my home now as well. And he's saying, essentially, my spiritual family has been elevated to every bit, if not more important than my physical family. And that's a huge statement for us this morning. And that's a big thought for us this morning. That your spiritual family, when you enter in to the kingdom of God, when you make the decision to follow after Jesus, to deny yourself and to believe and to trust, and when you enter into this kind of fellowship, this spiritual family, according to the pattern of Jesus, that is every single bit as important as what your physical family is. That's the way Jesus started out his ministry. And now that's a bookend to what we're gonna enter into at the end of his ministry. Jesus was like, mother, brothers outside, forget about it. They're right here right now. And now we're not saying you ignore your flesh and blood family. We know there are many laws even and warnings about not taking care of your family. We're not saying that. 
But what we are saying is your brothers and sisters in entering into this spiritual realm is now elevated higher than you even thought. You even see that same thought on the cross, right? When Jesus said in John chapter 19, when he said, woman, talking to John, he said, woman, um, talking to Mary, he said, woman, behold your son, John. John, behold your mother. She, John, you are now equal to me. I'm bringing you in and I'm elevating this spiritual family. You need to take care of her. So now the bookend is at the Last Supper. In John chapter um, 17, Jesus had just finished saying a number of words to these disciples who were involved in this intimate, hours-long meal. So he was in the upper room and there, he was there at this table with his spiritual family. And they had shared a meal together. He had shared a number of incredibly important things. But now he's going to lay down something else that is going to take on incredible significance. They were used to the bread. That's at pretty much every meal. That's a staple. Jesus himself said, I am the bread of life. They were used to hearing him talk about that. That was common. They were used to wine, probably at just about every meal. It was healthier than the dirty water. It was synonymous with celebration and with family. Anytime you see weddings, you see times of significance and friendship. There's wine involved, right? It's a symbol of God's blessing. That was there, but he's gonna turn everything around now. Because he's going to say, yeah, this bread that, you know, symbolizes health and vitality and a staple of life. No, this is actually going to symbolize death to me. Because as he broke it off and he passed it around, he's saying, this is my body. This is my body, which is being given to you for you to partake of. And this was such an offensive thought. Even earlier on, you remember when he called everybody, he said, if anybody does not drink my blood and eat my flesh, they will have nothing to do with me. People didn't understand what he's talking about. You are a madman. I'm leaving. I can't take this. And disciples left. But these who stuck, you know, stuck with it, stuck around, he's now explaining to them what this really means. And this wine that symbolizes goodness and friendship and celebration is now being poured out almost in an act of violence. Like this, this represents my blood. This represents what's going to happen. This blood that is going to be poured out and shared. And I want you to drink it. I want it to be part of you. So Jesus was essentially saying at this, at this moment, you are my spiritual family. You are my flesh and blood. And now... I'm going to share with you my flesh and my blood. And in John chapter 17, he speaks these words to him. He's praying for his disciples, for his family. Here's what he says. He says, Father, sanctify them in truth for your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified. Jesus is saying, it's for their sake that I consecrate myself. I give myself to be made holy through suffering so that they may also be made holy. On my account. 
And listen to what he says here. He continues on with this motif of family. He says, I do not ask for these only as disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So you know who he's praying for right then and there? Not just the disciples, but anybody that believes in me because of their word. You know what that means? Jesus was praying for us. I don't know about you, but I believe in God and I came to these knowledges because of what's written down here that was written by the disciples and the apostles. I believe because of their words. So Jesus is now praying for me and praying for you and praying for all believers. And what is he praying for us? He says that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Do you see the family connectivity? Do you see the DNA? Do you see the, God, I'm in you. We've got this relationship and we're one and now I'm inviting them into this spiritual family so that we can all be one. He continues on. Um, to say the glory that you've given me, I have now given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. What a concept to think that the spiritual family invitation was given to us. And Jesus is saying, I want you to be in me and I'm gonna be in you. We are one. And that's the invitation that's given through this concept And as we come to the table this morning, I want us to think about that idea of family, that idea of sharing, that idea of being one with God and him inviting us into his life. So we share two things essentially when we come to the table of communion. We share in his sorrow. We reflect, we contemplate, we honor God with our thoughts and with our mind as we think about what happened 2,000 years ago, as we think about how he suffered to bring us into his family, we share that. But we also share in his triumph. It's funny because Jesus commanded that we celebrate communion. Not that it's somber, not that it's sad, not that we're tearful, although that's part of it in that first aspect because we're sharing in his sorrow, we're contemplating that, but he commanded that we celebrate it because it is a victory. Because Jesus died, because Jesus suffered, because his life was taken, new life was made available to us. And we who were once outside of the family of God are now invited in to the spiritual household, invited in to partake and to be seated at his table and to be called his sons and his daughters.